You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live, where we talk to the changemakers influencing conversations from Capitol Hill to the entertainment industry and everywhere in between. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, and I cover Congress for The Washington Post. And joining me today is Congressman Maxwell Frost. He's known nationally for becoming the first representative from Generation Z on Capitol Hill. But back home in Orlando, Florida, he's known for his decades worth campaign and activism to change gun reform rights in this country. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk to you a lot about your first two and a half months on the Hill. You and I have seen just how crazy it's been, a lot of movement happening. Um, But, you know, I I remember my time as a freshman in any point in in life, and it was always a little awkward. I can't imagine being the youngest in a freshman class, but that hasn't seemed to intimidate you in any way. I saw that you tweeted earlier this week that you were preparing to introduce your first piece of legislation. Is there anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, um, well, you know, thank you so much for having me on. And, uh, you know, it's going to be around uh, ending gun violence, which, as you know, is something that's incredibly close to my heart as a survivor, but also as someone who's been in that work for about a decade. So um, really excited. It'll just be, you know, the first of many um, actions we take to work to end gun violence in this country. Since you brought up gun violence, I wanted to get your reaction to Biden signing those executive orders that are supposed to help a little bit more on the background check process. I want to get your reaction to that. But, you know, I I already know, having talked to you and a lot of progressives, that that's just one step. It's not solving the whole problem. So my second question to you on this topic is, what's it really going to take to see big, impactful reforms? Is it really going to take more people from your generation who have experienced gun violence? on Capitol Hill to make these changes become law. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very pleased uh, with the executive actions the president's taken. And, you know, that executive action agenda is actually something we've been pushing for many years um, in the movement. And it's just great to see the president take that step. You know, what he did in terms of working and directing ATF um, to really hone in on that definition of what it means to be someone who is a guns dealer means a lot because it means there's going to be more folks who fall under the background check law that we currently have. Um, it's part of the reason we push for universal background checks because there's too many loopholes and too much gray area where a lot of people slip through the cracks. And so um, very smart of the president. It's going to save lives. It's going to save people. Um, but like you said, we, we need a lot more. And I think the president is just taking the steps that you know he believes he can take to help curb gun violence. And I'm really, really happy with the action that we saw. But we, we do need a lot more. We need Congress to act. And unfortunately, and you know this, in a representative body, it's a math problem. If you don't have the math, you can't pass the bill. And if you don't like the math, you change the math. And that's what we need to do. We need to change the math in the United States Congress to elect morally just leaders who actually care about our lives. If you look at something like universal background checks, Most NRA members are for it. Most Republicans are for it. So in the rest of the world, we would say it has bipartisan support because what bipartisan means is something we can all agree on. But in Congress, on the issue of guns, the word bipartisanship takes a little bit of a different definition. And what it ends up meaning is what the NRA is okay with. And they're not okay with universal background checks. Part of the reason the president took this executive action to help expand the current background checks, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. You mentioned, you know, just how more people have to elect a different kind of set of lawmakers to Congress. And I do want to ask you about that later on, especially in the state, our home state of Florida. 
Um, but first, I wanted to ask you something that Generation Z is obviously on and all the time, and that is TikTok. It's come back into the news simply because the Biden administration is actually putting a lot more pressure on China to try and you know get rid of their shares to make TikTok a little bit less sketchy, let's say, um, potentially for all of the users. So many people are on that platform. And I, you know, I'm sure a lot of your colleagues and friends tell you I'm on TikTok. Why is this a problem? Why, why should I not be on TikTok if there are foreign countries that could be potentially taking my data? How do you talk to them about this? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's actually an issue I'm still learning a lot about myself. Um, didn't know much about it just a few weeks ago, to be honest. Um, but it, it is a concern, right? And it's something we should have a conversation around. But, you know, let's not, you know, let, let's not forget that there are many websites um, that many of us frequent um, that do, you know, collect our data and sell that data to other companies to use for advertising and et cetera. And so, I'd say the problem of data and social media is a bigger problem than just TikTok. But when we talk about uh, foreign governments like China, I mean, it is something we should take a look at. I'm, I'm not for unilaterally banning TikTok from the United States right now, um, but I, I do think we need to look into it and, um, and, and, you know, and see what, what needs to be done. So I actually have an audience question. This comes from Eugenia in Arizona who asks, how are you being treated by older members of Congress? How's that been? Yeah, I mean, I have felt fine, right? I mean, there's an occasional joke, you know, you're you're at a you're at an event, I crack open a beer, you know, like let me check your ID, you know, and I go, ha ha. Um, but uh, so there's there's occasional jokes, but honestly, I feel incredibly respected by my colleagues of all ages, and I think you know, folks are really excited um, to have you know Generation Z and young people in the halls of Congress, um, and I think I've had. You know, I've had a great experience getting to know my colleagues and, and being a young person in the hall. But I also have to say, right, I'm not the first like young person to be there. And there's people who come before me that did go through, you know, uh, trials and tribulation um, when they entered. And so, you know, without them, you know, really coming in and, and setting the ground, you know, for young people being in Congress, I probably would have, have I probably would be having a lot of a harder time. And so, um, you know, it's important to think about the folks before. Um, but yeah, I feel incredibly respected by my colleagues. Also, it's only month two, so you know we'll see. Uh, but yeah, um, your candidacy meant so much to many in the Democratic Party. I think because not only are you from Florida, which is becoming less of a swing state, more of a conservative state, and we will get to that. But you know, have you felt any pressure at all from progressives, from Democrats who are trying to appeal to younger voters to really? hone in on the message that you had on the campaign trail. Do you feel that pressure, that expectation that, I don't know, they're looking for you for the solution to connect to different voting groups in the Democratic Party? Yeah, you know, I, and I always, I always say this, I don't, you know, I don't count myself as the, the representative of a generation or the person who has all the answers on anything, but especially on my generation. Um, but I do bring my perspective everywhere I go. And, you know, my perspective as someone who's grown up in the mass shooting generation, as someone who has grown up as a black uh, Latino here in the state of Florida, um, and those experiences are important. I do think those experiences can help us reach out to young voters. And so, you know, the pressure I feel is keeping up with the promises that I made, um, which really have to do with our message and then the way we get that message across. And we know, especially with young voters, young voters want something to vote for 
and not against. They want a livable future. They want to live free of gun violence. They want everyone to have the resources that they need. Generally, obviously, a generation spans the ide ideological spectrum. I'm not speaking for everybody, but we see that Gen Z and young millennials have been voting overwhelmingly with Democrats. And when you talk with them about the issues and what they believe in, it's all centered around a world where everybody has what they need to live their best lives. That's the politics broadly of the generation. And that really excites me. I think it shows a great path forward for the country. And uh, we just need to really reach out to these voters um, and these people. We need to reach out to these people and, uh, and just talk about our platform, who we are, what we believe in, and not be afraid to talk about our North Stars and the world that we want to envision and work towards. I want to talk to you a little bit about you know, the, the young base, the progressive base, and also where the president fits into that. We are all expecting him likely to announce that he's going to run for president again. And it seems like a bit of that positioning in the last couple of weeks, he's strayed a little bit more to the center on, on different issues, whether it's the D.C. home rule um, on immigration and some new asylum processing decisions, as well as now being okay and greenlighting an oil drilling project in Alaska. All of those things go against what progressives have been talking about, what you have been, to your point, you know, promising that you could do possibly or influence on the campaign trail. How are you looking at these moves by Biden? And do you think it is worrisome when you're talking to those younger voters who say, wait, I didn't vote for this. I, I don't want to see this happening. Yeah, I mean, those actions are disappointing. And, you know, I, I expressed uh, my thoughts on it um, a few days ago on Twitter. And, um, and you know, we're, we're talking with the administration about where where we're at and what we believe. But I think it is important um, that, you know, the president continue on the amazing work he's been doing um, over the past several years on a bold, on bold uh, uh, legislation, executive action that's about leveling the playing field and ensuring that working families and people have the resources they need. That's why he's the most progressive president that we've had in modern history. Um, and, you know, I hope he will continue on to that. And, and, you know, sometimes you have to hold multiple truths, right? You'll have someone that you believe in and that you work with that might do some very disappointing things. Um, and it doesn't mean we don't hold that person to account. It doesn't mean we don't talk about it. Uh, but also doesn't mean we throw that person away, right? You know, we still look at the whole picture, him being the most pro-union president that we've had, um, him being, you know, uh, someone who's saw the IRA through, which has, you know, so much money, the most we've seen this country dedicate towards the climate crisis. But at the same time, we hold that he just approved um, oil drilling federal land Alaska, which, you know, he said he wouldn't do in his campaign. And so we, we hold these truths, right? And we, we figure out where we're going to go. And it's a little bit of a wrestling. Um, but at the end of the day, like, you know, I do I do support the president, especially if he, um, you know, um, this is real. Like young voters came out. Highest youth voter turnout was to vote for President Biden. And I think he just, you know, hold true to those values and what really brought young people out, which was a livable future, a world free of gun violence, a world where everyone has economic racial justice. And that's what we're looking to him for. We're looking for that leadership. So we're in communication with them. People should hold him to account um, when he does something that, you know, seems to deviate from from his values that he shared on the campaign trail. Um, but we but we'll continue to work with him. Right. And we'll 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 continue on this wrestling that we see not just, you know, with the executive, but we see in the United States Congress and municipal government and in government in general. So everything you just said actually segues perfectly to this viewer question, and it comes from Leah in, te in Texas, who asks, it's easy to get them registered, them being younger voters, but what do you think is the most effective way to encourage Gen Zers to actually get out and vote? You've mentioned it here and there a little bit, but really, 
how do, how do you even use your own campaign, really enthusiastically making sure that people turn out and vote? Your district, obviously very, very blue, but how can you make sure that those same kind of voters who might be living, for example, in Florida, in a, in a red state, are, are heard and feel like they are influencing the process? I think it's important that people see that their leaders are fighting for them and with them for the values and solutions they believe in. Um, and I think it's important that our electeds are honest with them. I, I think part of the reason, part, there's a lot of reasons. Part of the reason why 50% of this country doesn't vote is because they've been lied to for generations. Having politicians say, vote for me and this will happen. Vote for me and this will happen. And the reality of our system is it's just not, not how it works. It's not one politician that's going to save us. It has to be a collective movement, both within and outside the halls of government. And I think when we have leaders who are honest about that, honest about the movement, honest about the fact that I'm not on top of anyone as a member of Congress. I'm part of this movement, but I operate within a certain space. You operate within that space. Together, collectively, we work together on the values and what we believe in. That's bringing people in. And when they see you fight for them, no matter what it is, no matter if it might seem like a futile effort, no matter what it is, we fight to end gun violence. We fight for universal health care. We fight for paid uh, uh, sick leave and family leave. We fight for these things. And I think especially with young people, when they see that fight from their leaders, even though we might not always be successful, I think it shows them that their leaders are working for them because they are. And I think, you know, young folks in general just expect a lot from their leaders because we've been let down for so long. We literally live in a generation where you could describe us as the mass shooting generation because of the failures of leaders who have come before us. And we're not here to point fingers and play the blame game. We just want to be a part of the solution. And so first thing is, if you want people to vote, give them something to vote for. Show them that government works for them. You know, I think if Build Back Better would have passed, Democrats would probably most likely have the majority right now. I think, you know, we'll see what happens with the canceling student debt. But no matter what the decision is, I know the White House is ready and should move forward on creative solutions on still providing that relief to working people. And, and that those actions show people that government cares and works for them. And I think that's part of the part of the way you get people out to go vote. So I want to talk to you about our home state of Florida. Um, I will be down there in just a little bit. So I'm excited about that. Um, but oh, are you going to the uh, you going to the Republican conference? Yes, the Republican conference right in your backyard. Um, so right. I do actually want to talk about Republican politics, given just that the state has become more conservative, right? We saw overwhelmingly, even in the midterms, it really did wash away the perception of Florida being a swing state. Um, and yeah. it seems like all national politics is local in Florida. So I wanted to ask, to start you on this front, the issue of abortion, because we obviously have been seeing the ramifications of that across the country. In Texas, we're awaiting a lawsuit there about whether medically induced abortion pills will possibly be restricted. Um, just today in Florida, already Republican state legislators have actually approved, at least kicked this one bill out of committee. It's the first step of potentially putting into place a six week abortion ban. You obviously ran on this. It's something that Democrats have passionately been talking about even before um, Roe v. Wade was overturned. How can you talk about this with a number of your constituents who are concerned, who have legitimate worries, may not know where to go if they find themselves in the situation, especially since a number of Southern states are now limiting abortions? 
how are you kind of preparing your constituents about this potential reality and giving them hope of maybe changes not tomorrow, but down the road? Yeah, this is a really important question because people are scared, right? People are very scared in the state of Florida right now. And it's women and, and childbearing adults. It's L our LGBTQ plus community. It's black people. It's um, immigrants. It's Latinos. It's poor people because we have a governor who's been abusing his power to target uh, marginalized communities um, because he wants to run for president and it helps him in his polls for his primary. And that's what's going on right now in this state. He's closing businesses. He's changing the makeup of schools, firing entire boards, putting in conservative uh, uh, lapdogs that will just do what he says. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild what's going on in this state. And so what we're doing is we're working with local stakeholders. You know, there's amazing organizations like Florida Access Network that work at providing the logistics of people being able to get abortion that might not be able to here. And if this six week abortion ban passes, which the governor in a press conference has said he thinks it's good policy, he thinks it's a good thing, he, he, you know, he, he thinks it should pass, um, shows me that it probably will pass because whatever the governor wants, he gets in this state because the Republicans in the state legislature are just lapdogs who do what he says. And that's part of the problem that you know, that's part of the, the reason we're in this problem right now. So we're working with stakeholders, people who have the infrastructure to help folks receive the, the, the care that they need, uh, whether it's abortion or et cetera. And then we're also looking at how do we how do we combat this from a legislative point of view? And obviously, the North Star is we need to codify Roe at the federal level and Congress needs to do that. But obviously, like I said, it's a math problem. We don't have the math for the next two years at least. Um, and so we have to think about what can we do in the interim, um, and that's working with these groups, and that's ensuring people have the resources they need. Uh, we take care of us. That's really what that's about. Um, we also think there's going to be, hopefully, we, want, we don't know yet, but uh, codifying the right to an abortion in uh, the Florida Constitution by way of ballot measure. And if you look, UNF just released a poll that I think, you know, you hear people talking about Florida's a red state, Florida's a red state. For me, I think we, we had a horrible year. I'm not saying we didn't. <laughs> And I'm not saying the, the state's going to flip blue next year or next cycle, but I want people to think about this. You know, I think Florida is a case study in the difference between policy and politics. And what I mean by that is this. Look, there's a UNF poll that just came out that shows that in a head-to-head -head match, uh, DeSantis wins Florida by a few points over President Biden. Um, that's politics. When you look at policy, uh, medical or uh, uh, recreational marijuana, codifying the right to an abortion, um, things like $15 minimum wage, um, these things pull over 70%. In fact, $15 minimum wage passed here with over 60% of the vote. So there's a disconnect here between a state that actually, in terms of policy, is pretty progressive. $15 minimum wage, second chances with people who have previous felonies, the right to vote, medical marijuana, and then polling over 70% on codifying abortion, the right to an abortion. Um, ensuring that people um, are able, you know, medical or uh, recreational marijuana, but then they want to vote for DeSantis a little bit more than someone else. And that's something that DeSantis is good at. He's good at separating the policy from the politics. This whole conversation of woke and whatever the hell that is and all that, that's all politics. It's not about policy. And that's why he's thriving in that world. Democrats, we need to combine those things. And I don't mean, oh, be policy wonks and be all wonky with people. No, take policy. Learn how to tell the story of policy, the narrative of it, connect it to working people, create that working class movement that really it's what our party should be about. And that's how we reclaim this state. And it's going to take time.
and I'm here to do the work. But there's a difference between policy and politics. And the state of Florida, yeah, it might be a red state in terms of politics right now. But when you look at the polls and you look at what we've done in terms of ballot initiatives, the ideological, um, the ideo uh, ideology of this state is really in a, in a progressive lane. You mentioned something important too, which yes, Republican governor, Republican state legislature, Democrats, the Democratic Party in Florida has really eroded over the years. You don't see many electeds in state office. I think that is probably why you see many Floridians, as much as they may turn out and vote, not necessarily feel or, or see what they want in their local governments. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that democratic problem in Florida? Because to your point, maybe it rebounds in a couple of years, but what do you tell people who are, for example, directly affected by the don't say gay law, right? Yeah. And a number of other things that are coming down the line who may not want to go turn out Democratic because you're not seeing Democrats being elected and the party itself is not necessarily helping the state. Yeah, and that's why I think it's important to have legislators and leaders who are unafraid to speak out and show people, you know, that we're fighting for them. You know, we have great state representatives here, you know, Anas Kamani. We have great, uh, you know, members of city council, Bakari Burns, we, 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 Joanna Lopez. We just, we have such a great cadre here in central Florida of new elected officials, progressive elected officials who are fighting and showing people what it means to fight for and with them. And again, we might not always get the end result we want, but the people want to see you fight with them and for them. And I think that's how you keep it going. For our LGBTQ plus community, they are, they are in the, you know, they are the target of this governor right now. And so I think the main thing is how do we reach people who see what's going on and say, oh, this doesn't impact me or, oh, this has nothing to do with me. You know, um, and, and I'm talking about, you know, folks who see this on the news and that's where our party needs to do the real work. How do we not, we don't shame apathy. You know, that's something our party's done a lot. We shame apathy. Don't shame apathy. Inspire hope, inspire action, tell the story. Why does this, why does this matter for everybody? Why does this matter for working people? Because while the governor is targeting marginalized communities to run for president, he's not working on affordable housing. He's not working on ending gun violence. He's not working on getting wages up. He's not working on protecting working people. He just wants to oppress marginalized communities to run for president and it will have serious harm. And that's why everyone should care no matter who you are, because we're all in this together and we all want a better life. We all want to protect and feed our families, and that's it. And that message, we need to go to bat with it because there are a lot of people in this state who just don't see the connection between the fight for LGBTQ plus folks, black folks, um, immigrants. They don't see it as connected to their struggle that they might have, but the fact of the matter is that it is. And as storytellers and as organizers, we have to take a step back and figure out how do we tell the story of Florida? How do we tell that story and not let it be about woke or whatever the hell that is? And how do we make it about us? And that's the struggle that the party has right now. We tend to fall for this trap. They say we're a socialist or they say we're defund or whatever. We spend all of our media budget doing a commercial that says, no, I'm not. And that's the message. And I just think people want something to vote for and not against. And so we have work to do. Congressman, we only have a couple minutes left, but I did want to ask you, you know, you're very passionate because you've lived through different experiences. There are so many other people who are interested in politics, who may want to affect policy, 
but just don't know how to get there. A lot of young people in particular. You've been very open about the realities of running for office and not having the financial backing to be able to do that. If you could very quickly just give advice to people who may be watching who want to run for office but just don't know how to do it, how did you do it? What's your best advice? Well, the first thing I always love to tell people is I think it's important from a personal point of view, like to take a step back and think about why you want to run for office. You know, oftentimes in life, I think we're encouraged to have goals that are about being something, right? I want to be a congressman. I want to be president. I want to be a CEO. Um, but something changed my life. And I don't know who told me this, but at some point I kind of changed my goals from being something to doing something. And I encourage people to think about what do you want to do, right? It's not about being in a seat of power. It's about how do you use that seat of power to do work, whether it's gun violence or whatever, why do you want to run for office? And I think it's important to do that for yourself because it is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And in those times of trials and tribulation, being grounded in the do, right? And the things you want to do will give you the mental fortitude, energy, and grounding you need to continue in this fight and have what you need to actually win, be authentic. Um, so I would encourage people to run for office just to hold an office, run for office to do something with that office. And if you can't answer that question, it might not be your time, which is okay. But if you can't answer that question and you're convicted, please run because we need working people. We need people, um, diversity of age, race, gender, et cetera, economic status to be in the seats of power. And uh, the last bit of more practical advice I would give is save up money. <laughs> because it is expensive to run, not just in terms of money on the campaign, but also personally, um, because for many of these races, you have to quit your job or work reduced hours to be able to keep up. And so I encourage people save or have a plan. I didn't have a plan and uh, I put myself in financial ruin. Um, and now I have a light at the end of the tunnel because I'm a congressman making a good salary. If I would have lost, I'd, I'd be on very, very hard times right now. Um, and I took a risk, uh, but people shouldn't have to take that risk. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for sharing that advice and just bringing this fresh take on what's happening on Capitol Hill. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And now I want to bring in two of my exceptional colleagues whose reporting I admire very, very much, Caroline Kitchener and Akila Johnson, both of whom have been really covering just the conversation about around reproductive rights in this country and the impacts about what lawmakers are doing in different parts of the country. Both of you, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, us. <laughs> Thanks, Marianne. Of course. Caroline, I want to start with you because there is that high stakes lawsuit out in Texas. I think we're expecting a decision at any point in time. It might be fair to say that. This obviously looking at the role of medically induced abortions. What can you tell us about this lawsuit? I know it's a pretty broad question, but how, what, what does your reporting tell you and what should people know about it? Well, I think the first thing to know is that the implications could be really, really huge. Um, medication abortion currently accounts for over 50% of abortions in this country and the drug at issue here is mifepristone, and that is one of two key drugs that are used in a medication abortion. So I was actually in Amarillo, Texas yesterday listening to the arguments in the hearing for the lawsuit. Um, there were only, it was a small courtroom, it was just 19 members of the public and 19 press, 
and listening really closely for any kind of sign of what the judge makes of these arguments that have really been widely, widely discredited by leading medical associations and, you know, and, and, and legal scholars um, who say, you know, it's, it's, it's truly unprecedented for um, FDA approval to be challenged after 22 years, which is what's happening here. Um, Mifepristone has been around and, and been on the shelves uh, for over two decades, and this judge could potentially take it off the market. So, Caroline, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that judge. You have a deep dive story really going into his background, his own record. He is pretty conservative. Should that tell us anything about how he might rule on this case? Well, I think it's I mean it's impossible to know how he's going to rule, but there is a lot of judge shopping that goes on in Texas, and conservative lawyers really have an eye to his courtroom because he has a long track record of ruling in ways that they want on cases. And I really wanted to go into his background and, and get an idea for who he is as a person and you know, whether kind of what his beliefs really look like on the issue of abortion. There was a lot of talk in his confirmation hearings about his views on LGBT issues, but but less so on abortion. And we did uncover a long history that goes back decades, um, really since he was a kid um, and, and, and as, as a college student of, um, you know, just believing that abortion is morally wrong. Uh, we talked to over 20 of his friends and family members about those beliefs and they were really open. They said, you know, look, this is this is something that that really means a lot to Judge Kaczmarek. Um, he has a lot of personal reasons for believing so deeply in the anti-abortion cause. Um, and so, you know, it remains to be seen whether those personal beliefs um, or how they might you know, play into a potential ruling here. Kayla, you've done a lot of reporting about how these new decisions on reproductive rights is really affecting maternal health. There's this crazy set out there that just in Texas, 90% of maternal deaths are preventable. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why is that already such a problem? Then you add all of these new decisions on reproductive rights that could potentially make this a whole lot worse. Well, right. So one of the things is this country has long been um, um has had the highest maternal mortality rate amongst high in income countries and in texas 90 percent of maternal deaths are preventable but nationally about 80 percent of maternal deaths are preventable and so when you think about it it's everything from hemorrhage hemorrhage is a main leading cause of um maternal death and cardiovascular issues, obesity. And so it's kind of the health that people go into pregnancy with affects health, you know, their pregnancy outcomes. And, you know, what research has shown is that states that have uh, more restrictive uh, abortion laws, reproductive laws, or, or where access to reproductive health is more restricted, have higher rates of maternal mortality. So while sometimes we think of these things often as disconnected, they are very much interconnected in terms of how this all relates to the health of pregnant people um, before they go into, before they become pregnant, while they're pregnant, during birth, and then after, because the majority of 
uh, maternal deaths happen postpartum. And, you know, it's really interesting going back to that statistic that you mentioned in Texas, there was a report that came out late last year um, from the Texas Maternal Mortality Review Committee. So this is a committee of folks who look at all of the maternal deaths in the state and try to kind of hash out and really figure out what happened. And one of the findings that they found is that ectopic pregnancies um, were a leading and contributing cause to hemorrhage. And so, you know, folks on the committee said to me and when I, when I was interviewing them that it's really important to have this baseline because as we begin to see more restrictive um, access to reproductive health and kind of more restrictive laws, abortion laws, there's an expectation that that number is going to go up, that the, the number number of deaths from ruptured ectopic pregnancy is going to increase. And so what, what clinicians and researchers and academics are predicting is that what is already a crisis is only going to deepen as a result of these restri restrictive laws. And just even zooming in on the female population, you've talked and reported a lot about how all of these more disappearing reproductive rights is not just going to affect women of color, but also women living in rural communities. Can you talk about both populations and how this is gonna affect them? So women of color and women who live in rural communities have the highest, some of the highest maternal death rates in, in the nation. And so we have in this country, what are called maternal health deserts, uh, where there's just, it's hard to find access to the care that folks need when, um, when, when you're when you're pregnant, when you're trying to become pregnant, you know, looking for reproductive health. And that is particularly acute in rural communities. And so as we begin to think of um, restricting access to, to, to services, so if you already have a small pool um, and access is already hard, and then you layer on top of it, you know, um, deeper, deeper laws that are further restricting access, you, again, you're just worsening a crisis. And in rural communities, you know, you quite often hear about pregnant people having to drive hours, sometimes hundreds of miles to reach a, um, an obstetrician, you know, a midwife, someone who is going to help them through pregnancy. And so if, and that's for routine visit, you know, so if you have a medical emergency, um, that only gets worse. And so, some of what we are seeing in terms of causes of maternal death, going back to that report in Texas, are also indicative of lack of early um, access to maternal care. You know, ectopic pregnancies are something that can be caught early and should be caught early, but if you don't have access to medical care, you're not going to get to the doctor um, in time enough to catch it, and that's when it becomes a crisis, when of the fertilized egg implants outside of the uterus, and it causes significant internal damage to the organ that it implants on. Caroline, something that struck me recently from your reporting is the fact that if this judge does roll back access to the medically induced abortion pills, that could actually affect how the FDA processes any kind of drug moving forward. What are you hearing on that front? It seems a little bit unpredictable. It's a big concern. Um, you know, this, in the hearing yesterday, the, the lawyers for the plaintiff were questioned by the judge, you know, are, are, can you give me any kind of analog cases for this? Any other examples of a drug being challenged in court and um, FDA approval being revoked? And the plaintiff's lawyer said, no, actually, I can't. Um, and, and that was really, that felt like a moment in the courtroom. Um, 
you know, I, I think there was a, a lot of concern about how this decision, you know, if, if the judge does in fact rule to um, suspend or withdraw approval of mifepristone, how it would relate to other drugs um, for different things, um, you know, that, that might be controversial in some way, um, this could become a pathway challenging it in court. Um, and that really just sort of throws the whole FDA process for a bit of a loop. So, um, you know, I, I think that that people, you know, even beyond abortion are, are you know, are, are concerned about the future implications of this case. And I wanted to ask both of you, you've obviously done so much reporting in this space, but if you could think of one or two of the most impactful stories you've heard from women when it comes to living in this post-Roe world, what is it? Um, and Akhil, I'll start with you. You know, I think it would have to be, and it was actually in a place um, in in Maine, right? Which which where abortion um, access to abortion is 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 protected, for lack of a better term. And I spent the day at a at a reproductive health clinic, and it there were just um, the stories of women who were coming in and looking for safe places, not just to access abortion, but to access reproductive healthcare writ large, right? So these were women who were accessing this facility um, for years prior to prior to needing and accessing abortion. You know, they they were they were coming here for um, birth control uh, when they were in college, for their gynecological exams, um, you know, throughout postpartum care. And then in some instances when they needed to access you know, abortion services for a variety of reasons, this is also where they felt safe and comfortable doing it. So it really reiterated that um, a, access to abortion is but a moment in time in a woman's life. And it's just but a moment in time across the spectrum of her reproductive health. And so when we think, you know, one of the things that, um, that these providers quite often said is abortion is healthcare. And when we think of abortion as healthcare, and what that means, it's the various ways that it is used to treat um, miscarriage, uh, pregnancies that are threatening the life of the mother, that are threatening the life of, you know, whether fetal, fetal abnormalities. I mean, we just talked about ectopic pregnancies. And so that experience, that reporting trip really is one that sticks with me. Caroline, what about you? Um, it's hard to choose. Um, I. I spend a lot of my time talking to women who are affected by these abortion bans. Um, but one that really stood out from the end of last year, um, I did a story about the um, illegal abortion pill networks and all of the things that you know women in states where abortion is banned are, are trying to do to get access. And um, I spoke with one woman in a banned state who, um, you know, she was she was ten weeks along. She had. She, she was so desperate. She had no idea what to do. And so she wrote a, um, she w went online and, and wrote a post on Reddit just saying like, does anyone have any idea what I can do? Please help me. I can't get out of state. I don't know what to do. And she gets a message from an anonymous user that says, um, hi, you know, I'm, I'm in California. I can mail you the pills. And she has no idea who this person is, um, but she's desperate. So she says yes. And the pills arrive in a box for cat flea medication disguised. Um, 
and she takes them out and her boyfriend says, you know, are you sure you should take those? Like, we have no idea what they are. And she says, I really don't have a choice. This is what I have to do. And it was really scary. You know, she, she ended up being fine and, and the abortion worked, but it was a really traumatic and scary experience because she uh, bled a lot more than she thought she was going to. She saw a lot more than she thought she was going to. And she really wanted to call a doctor, but she couldn't because in her state, abortion was banned. And she was terrified that she would be sent to jail. Those are some very impactful stories. Thank you both for taking time from your very busy days to talk to us and inform our viewers about this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Nina. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.